All right, let's do Leviticus chapters 23 to 25. After dinner, I went out to the park and uh, played chase with the elementary kids, which seemed like a great idea at the time, but now it's, now it's proving not to be such a good idea, so it's okay. Try to be the cool pastor, and that's what you get for it, so <laughs> that's the payback you get. All right. Hey, I'll tell you what, we need to start... I'll explain why this matters. We need to start actually in chapter 24. I know I told you 23. Leviticus 24, you see this all over the Old Testament. I know after a while you think that we're making it up when we say it, but so much of Old Testament literature follows that pattern of A, B, A, start, different subject, come back to the first subject, tracing that triangle pattern. You just see that everywhere. This is another example and remember, in that pattern, whatever happens in the middle is actually the core. It drives everything around it. It's in the meat. It's the meat in the middle of the po' boy. It's the top of the mountain. That's the way that it's set up. And so 23 and 25 frame 24. 24 is supposed to be the uh, uh, kind of the core of this. All right, here's how it works. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 24. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from, morn or from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly." Before we go any further there, does anybody know what that lampstand is called, what the Jewish term is? Menorah, yeah. It's one of those questions you ask, it's almost too easy to ask, but yeah, that's it. It's the menorah with the uh, seven lights that, that shine out. And so you think of Hanukkah, celebration of Hanukkah, all that's, we'll actually talk about that in a little bit. But Okay, so verse 5, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it, two tenths of an Ephah, or Ephah, shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. That phrase, covenant forever, you know, think back to verse 3, statute forever. Both of these are lasting. They carry ongoing significance. Verse 9, And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Okay, hold your place there. Or if you're working your phone, that doesn't happen. But hold your place there. Go to Numbers chapter 6. We need to pick up two ideas from the book of Numbers that are going to help to make sense of what's happening in Leviticus 24 and why that is such a central portion there. So we're trying to make sense of what seemed like a strange set of verses in Leviticus. Um, you could say that really for all Leviticus. It sounds like a strange set of verses. What's going on there? Numbers chapter 6. Starting in verse 22, 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Okay, so this is this famous holy priestly blessing. Um, before we would take a, a test in our classes with Dr. Kelly at OBU, so Dr. Bobby Kelly, who comes a lot to Emmaus and does Bible studies, he would pronounce this priestly blessing over us before we took tests. Never made you feel any better, never helped your grade, uh, but it was always something that, that he would do. So this is priestly blessing. Two things to keep in mind here. One is that phrasing about the Lord's blessing being his face shining upon you, and, and his, so this idea of his light shining, his face shining, and then keep in mind, stick in the back of your mind for later, Verse 22 says, when this will happen, it's my name that is put upon the people of Israel. So face shining upon them, name being put upon them. That's going to be very important. Now, Numbers chapter 8. So that's the priestly blessing. Face shine upon them, put my name upon them. Numbers 8 is another retelling of what we read in Leviticus 24. Okay, so here we have Numbers chapter 8. Starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers, it was hammered work according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. Verse 3 there, Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand. That's language that just means when the menorah was set up, it was designed so that the light would shine out in front. Okay, go back to Leviticus 24 and let's put all this together. What's going on here? Leviticus 24, in the tabernacle and later in the temple, the menorah the seven lights shining out would shine out in front of the lampstand, and they would shine on what? What would the lamps shine on? They would shine on the bread. The bread that was put out on the table. Leviticus 24, you have the lamps in verses 1 through 4, and then you have the bread in 5 through 9. How many loaves of bread are there? What does that symbolize? The tribes of Israel, the people of Israel. So what do you have? You have the light of God's glory and holiness shining upon the people of God. What's the goal for God's people? The tabernacle, the temple, is supposed to be a reflection of all the cosmos, the, all the universe. What's the universe designed for? For God's glory and blessing to shine upon his people as they bask in his presence, as they bask in in his light. How often are the lights changed? Well, you can find that in verse 3 of chapter 24. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning. Does evening to morning language sound familiar to you from the Bible? Genesis 1. Yeah, this is the establishment of the days. How many evenings and mornings are there in Genesis 1? 
Ah, you guessed it. There are seven. You have the evening and the morning lights that are established in the creation. What's creation? It's a temple. All of Genesis 1 and 2 language is temple language. God creates a dwelling place for his people so that his glory and blessing will shine upon them as they bask in his presence and receive his glory and his blessing. You have that. You have seven lights every day of the week. The bread is changed two times a day, evening and morning. And then you go down to verse 8. How often is the bread arranged or, or placed before the people? Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. What's the Sabbath day? It's every seven days. What is God telling his people? Every Sabbath, every seven days, you come before me and you bask in the presence of my glory so that when you go out, you will live in my blessing. What is sin? <laughs> Anything that takes us away from that. We were created to live as God's people in his temple, in his world, basking in the presence of his glory. When we don't do that, when we don't come back before him, we miss his blessings. We miss his glory. We miss what it is to live for him. So Leviticus 24 is, is framing, or not framing, it's giving us the core of, of the story. Now you go to verse 10. Every time it seems like, except for the book of Revelation at the very end, every time something good seems to happen in the Bible, you have a story followed where somebody screws it up. Um, so Leviticus 24, verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite son, woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring out, the out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him Lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Okay, when you hear that story, what other places in Leviticus does that make you think about? What other, just give me the general idea of stories that that brings to mind when you read that. Yeah, so, yeah, well, yeah, I guess when you get the New Testament, it does bring up the Stony of Stephen on a, on a positive sense. What it makes you think about is if you go back to chapter 10, if you just glance back at chapter 10, in chapter 9, God's glory is shown in this really powerful way to, to the people. In chapter 10, those knuckleheads, uh, Nadab and Abihu, they go strolling into the Holy of Holies with offerings that they weren't supposed to, uh, supposed to bring, and what happens? They die. They took as unholy or as common something the Lord had set aside as holy. 
So they blasphemed the Holy of Holies. They blasphemed the sacrifice. And what happened? They died. (laughs) Chapter 24, God's blessing is supposed to be shining upon the people. And this guy comes along and he takes something holy, the name of the Lord, and he uses it in an unholy way. And what happens to him? He dies. Because, remember that priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6, when God's face, when his light shines upon the people, what does that represent? It represents his name, that is place. Leviticus 6 ties the face and the light of God to the name of God. Leviticus 24 says, when you take as common the holy name of God, you are blaspheming. You are treating it as unholy, and the result of that is, is death. Now, there's something really interesting that happens back in verse 14. Bring out the camp, the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. What does that make you think of? That's the scapegoat language, isn't it? That's Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement. You're putting the sins of the people and saying, get that out of here. Like, we cannot have that type of attitude, that type of blaspheming. I guess that's how it works. In here, we, we've, got to, we've got to get it out of here. So that same type of language um, come, comes back around. Here's the other interesting thing about this blaspheme, the name of the Lord. Look back at the very end of chapter 22. <clears throat> so leading into this section, 23 to 25, look how 22 ends. 22, verse 31. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. All those references in 17 to 22 about how to live a holy life culminate with don't profane the name of the Lord. Then you have 23 to 25 that sets together as this section, and right at the middle, what does the guy do? He profanes the name of the Lord. And so it's showing you what it looks like to reject the ways of God, to reject living in his presence. You use as holy something, uh, you treat as common something that, that is supposed to be holy. Now, 17 to 23 is kind of tricky in, in chapter 24. You're going to hear a lot of, you're, you're going to hear a little bit of New Testament language here. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Again, taking something God has given and using it in a way that God did not design. You're taking something that's not yours to take. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. Verse 18, or verse, yeah, no, 19. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, so this is the famous eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth passage. Which Jesus will come back around in the Sermon on the Mount, and he'll say, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, whoever strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. Someone wants to take your shirt, give them your coat. Someone forces you to go to one mile, go two miles with them. So he's taking this language, and he's extending it even further. 
But here's something that's going to be important in a few minutes from, from this particular section. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth is actually, in this culture, an example of God's mercy. Because it was very common in this culture, and frankly, you take even contemporary culture, if somebody does something to you, you not only do something back to them, but then you take it up a step. You ratchet it up a step. And then that happened to me, and so I'm going to get back at you, but I'm going to take it up a step. Uh, If you take care of kids or grandkids on a regular basis, you know what this world looks like. It's not just like return favor for favor. It's return favor for favor and then take it up a notch. God is putting limits on the actions of the people, that they can only take this justice so far, that there's, there's a, um, a limit to how far human justice can go. In the New Testament, you know, you get language like, uh, vengeance is the Lord, he will repay, uh, which is reflecting Old Testament language, where we trust, God, you're going to take care of this. Human justice only goes so far because we know if we leave human punishment and justice up to humans left to themselves, it loses control. Uh, we even have in our government this idea of punishment that goes too far is not allowed. It should fit the crime. That all reflects this type of, type of thinking. So chapter 24, we were created to live in the Sabbath glory of God, to bask in his glory, to experience that. When we profane that, it leads to death. Human justice is always tempered by this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth reality. Okay, That's the core of it. Now, what happens in 23 and 25? Let's get back to 23. 23 and 25 are built on a huge emphasis of calendar time. Like your, your life is meant to follow a particular rhythm. It follows this particular calendar. We're going to get to it in a little bit, but on the back I've listed a little bit of the Jewish calendar. And so we'll look at that in just a, in just a few minutes and talk about this. The first thing I want you to see is, let's look in in chapter 23, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feast. Uh, First point is that it's possible for something to be a holy convocation, and still be a feast. (laughs) Sometimes we associate holy with sad and boring, and you're going to see that there are solemn occasions that God puts in here, but it's also supposed to have a festive feast atmosphere. Something can be holy and fun at at the same time. Um, Verse 3, what's the very first thing that he establishes? The Sabbath. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now the concept of Sabbath connects right back there to the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, and we've already seen that it sets the stage for chapter 24 for what it means to live as the people of God in in his glory. Look, if you've got a copy of the notes, Roman numeral 2, Point B, I'm just going to read this so you can kind of get a feel for it here. God designed the entire calendar as a reminder of the sacredness of the seventh day from Leviticus 23.3. 3. 
He gave seven festivals during the year, festivals that lasted more than a day, lasted seven days. To determine the date of Pentecost, they counted seven times seven days, or 49 days, after the festival of first fruits, and the next day was Pentecost. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year, and after seven times seven years, or 49 years, the next year was the Jubilee year. Um, now, James and I were talking beforehand about how much you take numbers and correlate them with meaning. You don't have to look far to see that the number seven carries incredible meaning, uh, not only in creation, but how the people of God are going to live, that there's this rhythm based on the number seven. This calendar time that connects us back to creation and how it orients the way we live in the world. Look at the second festival that's given there in, in verse four. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. All right, now let me, let me clarify something that could be, could be confusing here. Verse 5 says, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is, is the Lord's Passover. Now, if your memory was good and, and you were feeling sassy with me, you could say, but oh, and a couple of weeks ago, when you were talking about the Day of Atonement, you told us the Day of Atonement was the beginning of the new year for the Jewish people. But right here, it says the first month is in reference to the Passover. So does the new year begin with Rosh Hashanah and Day of Atonement, or does it begin with Passover? Day of Atonement is in the fall. Passover is in the spring. They actually had two New Years. In fact, they had four New Years, to get even more complicated. But there were two New Years. Um, so if you like New Year's parties, the Jewish calendar is, is good. They had a New Year, a civil New Year, that started in the fall with Rosh Hashanah and, uh, and uh, Day of Atonement. And then they had a festival New Year that started in the spring with Passover. So two different months, two different times a year, both were considered part of their new year. It just started a different type of year both times. So not a bad idea. You follow separate calendars. You think you have trouble keeping track of your calendar at home. <laughs> like, imagine living in that. Which new year are we on now? So uh, that idea. That's what's going on there. Uh, verse 6. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days, no surprise, what other number would it be? For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a, present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Now, what's our time? Okay, let's, let, me, let me go a little bit quicker through chapter 23. We'll pick 25 and then we'll come back. Verse 9, if your Bible has those little headings, this gets really easy because <laughs> you can just follow along with me on the headings. Verse 9 starts a section about the feast of first fruits that was tied up with the Passover and, and unleavened bread time. Then verse 15 starts what's called the feast of weeks. This corresponds to in the New Testament what will be Pentecost. 
50 days, seven weeks plus a day, carrying on from Passover or, or the death of Jesus onto the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So, so that's the Feast of Weeks. Down in verse 23, you have the Feast of Trumpets. This is the f- first of the civil new year that happened in the fall time uh, for them. And then verse 26, it leads up to the Day of Atonement. Uh, another of those events that happened in the fall, September, October time frame. Then you have the Feast of Booths. This is sometimes mentioned even in the New Testament, uh, commemorating God delivering his, his people and how they lived in booths and tents as they were going through. Uh, has anybody been around a Jewish celebration where they actually put up the booths at the Feast of Booths? Anybody seen those? There's these pretty cool-looking uh, tent structures, lean-to looking structures that, that they will put up during the, during the Feast of Booths. And so that takes you all the way down through chapter 23. Now, look over to chapter 25. So chapter 25 is going to take the concept of time and then talk about how we use different times to treat the land and the people around us. I put on your notes there as a reminder, this is Roman numeral three if you're looking at that little half sheet of paper. Roman numeral three, a reminder that the people of Canaan, that the Israelites are going into, the people of Canaan, they worship creation. They worship the prosperity God, the fact that you were going to continue to, to gain and gain and gain and the fertility gods and all the things that would come. But we have that reminder in Scripture, especially from Jesus in Matthew 6, you can't serve both God and money. You can't serve the Creator and at the same time run around seeing how much of this creation you can gain for yourself. Those two don't, don't work together. And so the chapter is set up so it protects those who might be exploited and it shows us how to use creation. Let me show you how this works. Chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. So again, you have the concept of sevens. Every seventh day you should rest. Every seventh year, the land should rest. The land, verse 3, For six years you sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All that you yield shall be for food. Wow. That's a pretty amazing concept. Um, now, I think if you talk to people who work the land for, for a living, especially if you jump back probably a generation or two and, and talk to people in agricultural con- context, there's some good wisdom behind this. If we continually take and take and take from the land and don't allow it to replenish, don't allow it to rest, well, you, you get what you asked for. The land's no longer able to produce in the same way that it was. It's like God created it to have some rest every once in a while, that you rotate your plot so you don't try to pull as much as possible. This is so hard because we live in a world 
in which the goal is to exploit as much from the resources around us as possible. So you take and you take and you take from the land, you take and you take and you take from people, and after what happens, people break down, the land breaks down, creation breaks down because it wasn't meant to operate that way. If you take and take and take from people and they don't rest, they break down after a while. You take and take and take from the land, after a while the land breaks down and doesn't produce the way it's supposed to. So God has set it up here, so there's a a rest um, in the land, a rest for the people. Now, it goes further. Okay, full confession. I know I talked about running around with those kids. I'm 36. I've never had trouble seeing words on a page. I don't know if I'm lightheaded from running or if I'm going to have to get glasses because I'm getting old. Uh, I'm having a terrible time reading tonight. So uh, if you see me show up with glasses in a few weeks, you'll say, I remember the moment that happened to it. I made it all the way through PhD work, never had glasses. And now I'm having a terrible time seeing what's on the page. I'm going to blame it being lightheaded after chasing those kids around. So, good night. All right. I think this is verse 8, but it looks like 6, so I'm not sure. It's either 6 or 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound, this is verse 9, then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. We're in verse 14 now. If you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You pay your number, your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it's the number of the crops that he's selling to you. In other words, don't take advantage of either. Don't, don't exploit one another. You shall not wrong one another. Here's the key phrase. But you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall do my statutes, Keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit. You will feel, or eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall not eat the old until the ninth when its crop arrives. Wow, that's pretty incredible. So there's not only going to be a one-year rest. When you get to the Jubilee, you rest the Sabbath year plus the Jubilee year. There's two years of, of rest for the land. And the people say, well, what are we going to eat? And the Lord says, well, I'll, I'll provide for you. Uh, remember when they were going through the wilderness and God provided the manna? What happened if they took extra manna, not knowing about what he's going to provide? It got maggoty. Like, it went bad. Uh, because God said, you'll trust me to provide. If you try to take for yourself and do it your own way, it's not going to produce the way it was created to produce. This concept of jubilee, of releasing people from debt and returning land and caring for one another, 
just, you know, we can't even fathom how countercultural that is. Like, hey, just wait 50 years and all your debt's going to be, going to be forgiven. Wait 50 years and you're going to be set free. This, this concept, I mean, many of us, we feel like we pay on a lot of debts for 50 years, your student loans um, or your mortgage. You know, it feels like that long before you're able to get through it. But this whole concept of being set free, I want to guide you a little bit through chapter 25 to see the rationale. This is at the bottom, Roman numeral four there, the land that, um, look back in 25.2. 25.2, why is God setting it up this way? Why does this make sense? Speak to the people of Israel, say to them, when you come into the land that I give you. Verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. Why does God tell people to operate in this way? Because the land isn't ours to begin with. It's his. It's stewarded to us as his creatures to take care of creation. Where does that concept come from? Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve, why are they put in the garden? To take care of the garden. To, to tend it. Um, what happens when Jesus shows up after his resurrection? How does he appear to Mary as a gardener? This whole concept of creation to Jesus' resurrection and the way that we are put here to steward the creation of God flows, flows through this idea. The second thing, look at 25.38. Gets into some of these passages about how we treat the people around us in these Jubilee and Sabbath times. Um, actually, back up to uh, 25.35. If your brother becomes poor... And cannot maintain himself with you. You shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit. But fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money and interest. Nor give him your food for profit. If somebody's poor, don't make them poor. Uh, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan. And to be your God. Why should you treat people this way? Because you were in a huge debt and God rescued you out of that debt. And so if he rescues you from a big debt, and let's just take a parable from the New Testament. He rescues you from a big debt and you turn around and find your buddy and demand that he pays his debt to you. What happens then? He gets very angry and throws you in jail and says, you're going to stay there until you can pay this off. That parable from Matthew 18 is, is reflected in this. Uh, so when I was at New Orleans Seminary uh, doing the PhD work, I served as the financial aid director for the seminary extension, or seminary system, all of our campuses. Right across from the campus there at New Orleans um, was a um, quick loan place. You know, like the 23% loans that morph into the 110% loans. And so every year I would get up at orientation with new students and give my spiel about financial aid. And I would always tell them where to find my office on campus. And then I would follow up with the semi joke, the financial aid office is not across the road at that yellow building that says cash on the front. Like if you get in trouble, don't go over there because you're going to be even more trouble by the time you come out of that place. And so this idea that when someone's hurting, when someone's poor, as God's people, we don't make them poor. 
We meet them where they are, help them get out of that situation, get back on their feet, and begin to, to live as God's called them. Why do we do that? Because God rescued us out of a huge debt. And so if we don't turn around, this is the Lord's prayer language. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's exactly what that is. That is the Lord's prayer language working itself out through Leviticus here. Um, 2538 also reminds us that we're servants of God, not of one another. And then 2555, you get to the end of this chapter, and it says, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The reason we act like this is because he's God and we're not. <laughs> this is his world. We're living in it as his people, as his stewards, which means we take care of one another and we take care of creation. Uh, you guys know that you talk about environmentalism and contemporary environmentalism turns pagan so quickly. It's about worship of the earth. And so you take care of the earth because you, since you're almost worshiping creation, if there's anybody that should be environmentalists, Christians should lead the way uh, in that. Not in worshiping creation, but we are called to steward and care for creation. Genesis 1 says so. Leviticus says so. Where everything points to the New Testament says so. And so if anybody's going to lead the way on caring for the environment, it should be the people of God. Now, we don't do it in the same way because we're not living to worship this world. But if anybody's taking care of the world... Uh, we, we need to lead the way in that. Okay, on the back of your notes, let's wrap up with this. For your reference sake, I've given you those feasts from the Old Testament and the way that Jesus uh, fits in and fulfills all of that. So if that's of interest to you, looking at that, I want you to have that as a reference. Look down at the bottom on the back of that note sheet where it says principles and response. What do we learn from all this? Well, number one, Jesus doesn't do away with the law. He fulfills the law. And so all the good things that Leviticus points to, all these festivals, all of them are fulfilled in Jesus. He's the light of the world. He's the bread that satisfies. He's the Sabbath that gives us rest. He's the one who bears our sins. He's the one who pays our debt. All of this language of the law leads to all these good things that God would give us people. And so you, you see how that works. This idea of Sabbath... We, as followers of Jesus, live in a time where the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Jesus. He has brought a rest so that we are able to live in the glory of God and His holiness. But we live in this world, not the eternal Sabbath yet. And so in this world, we need reminders of what it means to come back into the presence of God. As Christians, we already can know what it is to live in the presence of God at all times. But if you don't remind yourself of that on a regular basis, gathering with the people of God to worship, it's amazing how quickly you can forget and move away from what God has for us. And so this value of reminding ourselves, I don't need to work every day. There's times I need to focus myself on the Lord. He's Lord of every moment of my life, but he gives us the gift of slowing down and focusing upon him and worshiping and resting and, and those things. Um, and then we've already talked about the care for, uh, for God's creation that's, that's listed there. So, All right. There's a lot to cover there, but 23 to 25 reminds us of God's goal for creation, goal for his people. Love him, 
love others, live in this world to show his glory. So let's do that really well. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that every time we come back to the book of Leviticus, something uh, many of us, including myself, spend a lot of our lives probably not reading or avoiding or being confused by. God, thank you for how rich uh, this section of Scripture is. God, it is the very heart of the Old Testament law where you show your character and your plan. God, it points us so clearly to Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. God, thank you for what it means to be able to study Scripture, not just to no more in our heads, but God, so we would live differently. God, let us be careful how we treat people around us, especially those who are in need. God, let us be very careful how we treat the world that you've given us. God, the way we live in creation should be distinct. And God, more than anything, we want to live in your presence, having your light shine upon us so we can shine that light to others. God, that we would be a city set on a hill, not hiding the light under a basket, but putting it on a lampstand so they can give light to all that are in the house. And God, that people would see our good works and they would give glory to you because you're worth it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.